Heritage Park Baptist Church, we make apprentices to Jesus Christ. For more information about our church, please visit heritagepark.org. I don't know um, if this has happened to you or not before. You go to the mailbox, uh, you check the mail, open the mail, grab the mail, look through it. Bill, trash, 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 bill, trash, trash, bill. And then you get an envelope that's like unique and handwritten and it seems like it's about the size of one of those young reader books thick. Yeah, you with me? You pull it up, you're like, what is this? And then you're holding it in your hands like, man, it's weighty and it's thick. And I mean, there may be $5 million in here. I don't know. So you're very careful in how you open it, right? And, uh, and you're very thoughtful. And then you pull it out and you start reading. And you're like, page one. I still don't know what this is. Flip over. Page two. Oh, it's a wedding invitation. I see. They put a lot of time in it. Page three. Oh, these are the people getting married. And then you go through and like, page six. Oh, I see the date that it is. And you kind of got, like, you got this thing, right? Because, I mean, when it comes to wedding invitations, like, this is a moment where you think to yourself, like, they spent some time and some money and some postage on making sure that you knew this was a very, very special invitation. And it's an invitation, really, um, to you to join, for you to join in joy. That's where we are in episode eight. We're going to step into what the Bible calls the Ten Commandments. You probably know them as the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20. And as we uh, crack open our Bibles and open our apps and we're looking, we've gone through, uh, you know, we've kind of sorted the mail and pushed the bills to the side and thrown the junk mail in the recycle bin. And now we have in our hands something weighty and special. And it's an invitation. It's an invitation to joy. That's where we are. So want to invite us as we get going in Exodus chapter 20 to start uh, actually in verse 1. God makes a declaration uh, before he gives us a commandment, and I want to start there. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Now, before we even go any further, I just want to note here that God's declaration is kind of threefold. Number one. God says, first of all, that I am the Lord. I am the one who has authority to say what I'm saying. So there may be other uh, little G-gods, there may be other little L-lords, there may be other little K-kings, but I'm the Lord. And I'm the one who has the authority to say what I'm about to say. Secondly, uh, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery... I'm the liberator. I'm the one who set you free. As we just sang about, I'm the one who made the way. So God's people were in Egypt, in slavery. He brought them out of Egypt, out of slavery, through the Red Sea, defeated their enemies. They have uh, begun the journey um, into the new land. So God has delivered them and and is in the process of creating a new people. And the invitation he makes today through these Ten Commandments is an invitation for them to live as the new people of God. But it all starts with freedom. Now, I just want to pause here and say, please note, has God given any of the Ten Commandments yet? Any of them? No, we're still in verse 2. The commandments don't start till verse 3. He is identifying himself as the Lord and as the liberator before he identifies himself as the lawgiver. Please don't miss that. Okay? Because some people think, oh God, okay, Ten Commandments, here we go. And, and they think, God, thank you so much for giving me some suggestions to live by. I'm sure I'll take your advice on the day that I need it. But as it stands, I'm going to make my own way here and be my own man, be my own woman here. I'm telling you. 
God has the authority to say what he is saying. And his ambition is for you and I to live free. That doesn't happen apart from us living according to the way that he says best. I am the Lord. I am the liberator. And lastly, I am the lawgiver. He does have something uh, to say to us. Uh, uh, Based upon him being the Lord, based upon him wanting us to live free, um, uh, he can give instruction on the way we are to live. Now, uh, we're going to jump in here in just a second, but I just, I want to, I don't want to skip past this. If this is in the Bible app, it's, um, uh, it'll be the next little set of verses here. But if you have a physical Bible in your hand, in the book of Deuteronomy chapter 4, uh, it comes, Deuteronomy 4 comes right, be- uh, right before Deuteronomy 5. Pretty good. Um, and uh, Deuteronomy 5 is the restatement of these same Ten Commandments. So the question on the table in my mind is, like, why, why God, why did you give us these commandments? Uh, in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 40, Moses says this to the people of God. Therefore, you shall keep his statutes and his commandments, which I command you today, that it may go well with you and with your children after you, that you may prolong your days in the land that, your Lord, your, that the Lord your God is giving you for all time. So here's the thing. God gave us these commandments for a reason. And what was that commandment? To bless us so that it would go well with us and with our kids and with the folks who followed them. Like he's giving us a way that you and I can live with him and with one another. And this is a, it is, it is a blessing. He gave it to us to be a blessing, but that's not all. Because any time God blesses us, um, we are not just to hold on to that blessing. God blesses us so that we can do what? So that we can be a blessing. So in, in earlier in the very same chapter, Deuteronomy 4, look at verse 5. Deuteronomy 4, 5. See, I have taught you statutes and rules as the Lord my God commanded me that you should do them. This is Moses talking. That you should do them in the land that you're entering to take possession of it. Keep them. Do them. Uh, For that will be your wisdom and your understanding, and don't miss this, in the sight of all the peoples, in in the sight of the nations, who, when they hear all these statutes, they will say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? So God gives them to us to be a, to bless us, but also for us to be a blessing um, to the nation. So the idea is we would live according to the things that God said are best to do, and people would see that and go, Dude, that's pretty wise. That's, that's a wise way of living. Oh, that right there, that's, that's a good way to live. Man, I see that guy over there and I see what he's doing. I see how he's acting in this moment. That is just and right and true. And on and on and on we could go. So people are to see the way that we live and then they go, man, God must be pretty smart. It's to bless us and to be a blessing. So um, one of the questions that comes along, and I don't, uh, we're going to jump into the text here in just a second, uh, but there's a little detour right over here for a moment. Let's pull over to the shoulder. Um, what about all the crazy parts of the, like the Old Testament law? It's got some crazy stuff in it, right? Like um, don't plant two kinds of uh, seed right next to one another. Like don't grow rice and okra in the same field. 
Maybe that's not as crazy to you as it is to me. I, I like rice and I like okra. I mean, you know, throw some squash in there. I'm good. Right. Maybe that's not as crazy as um, don't wear two different kinds uh, or don't, your, your clothes should not be made out of two different kinds of fabric. Some of you are in trouble right now. Right this second. Uh, certainly there was some really crazy stuff in there about women. And um, not to, uh, you know, skip past that, but furthermore, God does not, he is not in the Old Testament, he is not a fan of bacon-wrapped shrimp. (laughs) You can't have shellfish and there's no bacon. Thankfully, the New Testament set that aside and everybody said, yes, Lord, thank you for that. (laughs) What do we say about all the crazy parts? We'll get to this at the uh, at the the third part of this, but just remember, like this is a particular context. God's people are journeying through, and He's trying to teach them to live as His people. And the first big thing out of the box is in Exodus 19, even before He gets to the Ten Commandments, is Hey, I want you to be different. You're going into a place and you're going into a land where there's all sorts of people doing all sorts of chaotic things and unleashing all sorts of havoc and evil in the world. Don't be like them. It's easiest to be like them, but don't. Set aside some things. Uh, uh, Do some things differently. Don't do some things. Uh, Step into some things. Move out of some things. He wants the people to be different. So in Exodus 19, verses 5 and 6, it's referenced there. He says, hey, listen, obey these commandments because you are a treasured people to me. You you are my prized possession. You are a holy nation. You are a a, a kingdom of priests. Be different. He wants their lives to be different. Secondly, um, what do we do with the crazy parts? Here's one thing to remember. Um, And and unless you're uh, fairly um, schooled, well-schooled or familiar with um, kind of ancient Near Eastern uh, law codes, you just have to take me my word for it here. This, his law was a big step forward in socioeconomic life. Like the laws that people lived according to then and the laws that God set forth, they are highly contrasted. It was a big, big step forward. And I'll, just, I'll try to prove it this way. Um, at, the, at the foundation of the way that people were to treat one another, at the very core, the bottom of all of this, is this idea that we should love our neighbor as we love ourselves. That, that is, at the, that is the, the root ethic of all of this. All of the stuff that we're going to uh, take up next week and all the rest of the other parts, it, it's this root ethic of I'm going to treat one another the way that I want to be treated. In the New Testament, we call that the... The golden rule. That's exactly right. It's golden for a reason. Most people then, and I'm sure it is. it does not translate to today. I'm sure it doesn't. Most people then, though, treated people the way that they could treat them rather than the way that they wanted to be treated. And so if I had power over somebody, I could exercise that power. If I had um, authority or more might or a bigger sword or a bigger army, I could exercise that power in the way that I wanted. But the core of the Bible's um, ethical teaching is love your neighbor as yourself. Treat others the way you want to be treated, not the way that you can. And so this is a huge step forward, a huge step forward. Thirdly, 
Um, and uh, this is just to put it in context here. This is what I referenced a while ago. His law, and this is really wordy, but just work with me here. His law was given to Israelites for Israelites so Israelites will be a light to the nations until the Messiah comes. God gave them this law to a specific group of people and he wanted them to live differently and to be different for for their sake and for the world's and uh, to be a blessing to the nations until the Messiah came. And Jesus comes along and says, don't think I've come to abolish the law. I've actually come to live as the fulfillment of it. That's Matthew uh, chapter 5. So what do we do with the crazy parts? We know that they tell us some things about God. They tell us, they reveal some things about who he is and what he uh, intends for the world. But we also recognize that there were some things that are true in the ancient Near East that don't carry forward. And again, I just point to bacon-wrapped shrimp. God said, don't be like that. And then, then, in, in uh, multiple New Testament passages, he's like, hey, all food is actually clean. You can eat it. As he's creating an even larger family, including uh, non-Jewish folks in it, uh, he's saying, man, the food stuff, it doesn't, it doesn't carry forward. Um, what, I actually had this conversation two weeks ago with somebody. And so let me just um, highlight this because it came up. Uh, yeah, but, but there's some parts in the Bible, though, that, like, the Bible says some stuff, and, it, well, the question specifically was, hey, um, when in the Bible did it become okay to be a polygamist? That was the question. Um, you know, in Genesis 2, you got one man, one woman, and then, like, you got all of this crazy stuff happens from, basically, Genesis 3 on. And he, here, here was my response then, here's my response now. That, that law didn't change, like... Um, and here's the way I'll say it. Just because the Bible reports it, it does not mean that it condones it. And in fact, some of the ways that it reports it, you realize that it's actually not condoning it at all. And I'll just give you an example. The polygamy example was the one that was given to me. And I'll just bring it back up. Um, a polygamy example. Uh, you know, all of these people in the Bible have multiple wives. So, you know, the Bible's saying, well, there's multiple wives. And, I, and here's the question I asked, like, how did it turn out for all those people? Like, because at no point did the Bible say, hey, Abraham, good job on that one, pal. Or, hey, Solomon, you're the wisest guy who ever lived. 700 wives and 300 concubines. Dude, that was a good play right there. No, in fact, when you read the Bible and you read the story of Abraham and you read the story of Solomon, you read, you see that, hey, the Bible's telling us something without explicitly putting its finger on it and go, don't be like him. It's telling us in story form what it desires for us. That Genesis 2, in this particular example, did really hold true. It's better to have one husband and one wife for a lifetime. So, all of that. that that's the crazy part talk. Okay, off the shoulder and back on the main lanes here. Here we go. First four... Just a question. If I had a $100 bill in my hand, I don't, uh, and I don't have it in my pocket either. But, like, if I had a $100 bill in my hand, could you name all Ten Commandments? Yes. Oh, a couple of them. Yes, I could. Google's my friend. No, no. Really? Okay, I just wondered. You, you really could. You, you could get them all. Okay. Hey, okay. I know. All right. If I had a $100 bill, I'd give it to you. I don't. Yeah, just pretend. Okay. All right. Exodus 20, verse 3. Hopefully, over the next two weeks, we'll, uh, you'll be thinking a lot about these. Uh, for, 
First commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. N- number one, straight out of the box, no other gods. Uh, the, the, ones, the rest of the ones that we'll talk about today kind of flow from and give expression to this. Um, but here, here's where he starts. He is the single authority in our lives. There's only one king, and it's him. No other gods before me. And you think to yourself, I didn't even know there were other gods. Other spiritual forces at work, and, and you and I have the capacity to make gods just like that. So we just want to say, there's no other authority in my life except for God. Um, he alone is to be the king without challenges, without rivals. If you can imagine being in the court of a king and, and then pledging your allegiance to another king, that would be treason. God saying, no other gods. The single authority of my life. And secondly, the single priority of my life. Because there will be other things that want to incite our allegiance, that will call for our allegiance and incite our affections. And uh, Jeremiah, the prophet, in chapter 9, verse 23, picks it up this way. He says, Let not a wise man boast in his wisdom, or a strong man boast in his strength, or a rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, and he understands and knows me that I am the Lord who exercises righteousness and justice and steadfast love on the earth. So the, the idea is simply there will be things that come along and call for our allegiance, riches, wisdom, strength, the, the, the pleasure that we pursue, the comfort that we desire. And we're saying, God, you alone are, are, are the authority of my life. You alone are the priority of my life. I will give everything uh, that I can to you. When I love him with everything, I don't have anything else to give um, to a different idol. John picks this up in First John chapter 2. He says, uh, it, don't love the world. If you love the world, the love of the Father isn't in you. So the idea is that you, you just you pour all your heart out to God and, and uh, give all of your allegiance to God and all of your affection to God. And then um, you, don't, you don't have any left over for any of these other things that may call for your allegiance or your affections. No other gods before me. Second, verse 4. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or um, that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and who keep my commandments. Here's um, second thing. Uh, we are to have no idols or images. One of the ways that we know that God is the only authority and only priority in our life is that we have no other idols or no other images. Back in the day, just in case you are, again, not schooled on ancient uh, Near Eastern religious practice, they would literally have a statue or literally have a carving or literally have a something or other, and they would call that their God. And they wouldn't necessarily think it was the God, but they would know that that represented the presence of God um, in the world. And so whatever they did in and around that idol, they did in and around the presence of God. So here's, here's what you need to know. There is nothing, absolutely nothing that we can make that accurately portrays him. Nothing. Nothing. Folks, you can't, you can't build a family, you can't build a, a retirement portfolio, you can't build a career, you can't build a company, you can't build a social standing, you can't build a following, you can't build a platform. Nothing accurately portrays him that you and I can lay hands on, that you and I can put our hand to and make. Nothing. No idols. 
no images. Um, later in the story in Exodus, we'll actually see this, but um, uh, Moses is up on the mountain and uh, the, the people of Israel, with some help from folks who ought to have known better, uh, uh, make a, a golden calf or a bull. And they, they show, they show by that, this is God who brought you out of Egypt. That's what they're saying about it. So here's this powerful, powerful um, image or idol. But a, a bull may show power, but it shows no compassion. So nothing that we can make portrays God in all of his fullness. But some of you grew up in and around church traditions where um, you would walk through uh, a church building or, or whatever, and you would see um, a, a cross with uh, Jesus um, hanging on it, a crucifix. Um, again, Crucifix shows the incredible mercy of God towards sinners in that moment. But folks, it doesn't capture the victory that was experienced as a result. Like the cross is empty. So is the tomb. So nothing that we can make, nothing catches the full um, the picture of who he is. Um, I, can you think, though, can you think of, of an image th- uh, th- that might portray God in a fuller sense than just an inanimate, um, unspeaking kind of object? Can you think of an image that might do so? The Bible says in Genesis chapter 1, you and I are made the image of God. So we are to be the ones who are walking, talking representatives of who he is. Perfectly? Eh, no. We we still got some work to do. We'll talk more about that here in a minute. But but still, we are to be the ones who step out into the world as his representatives and reflect compassion and reflect power and reflect wisdom and reflect truth and reflect righteousness and reflect justice and reflect goodness. We are to be the ones who step out and live in that way. We, we are the walking, talking representatives of God. And every one of us here in the um, Exodus chapter 20, almost all of the, the pronouns, you are singular. So he's talking about you individually. Not, not y'all, you. So each person in each generation is responsible for hearing God and responding to what he um, is, is saying and what he's asking. So um, it is designed for us individually. And that actually puts a little context on this kind of crazy passage starting in verse 5. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, um, but showing steadfast love to thousands for those who... Love me and keep uh, my commandments. It is designed for us individually. Some people think that sin gets passed down from generation to generation. And because I, as a dad, mess something up, that somehow my kids are going to suffer at God's hand. Listen to me. Sociologically, that is true. If you grew up in an alcoholic home, you are more likely to be an alcoholic. If you grew up in an abusive home, you're more likely to be a victim of abuse or be an abuser yourself. That Sociologically, that is true. But that's not because God is on the throne going, oh, well, they're so-and-so. Boy, they really messed that up, poor kids. If you have in your mind 
a picture that there is a God who is going to punish your children because of your sin, I just want to say that's not what he's describing here. That is, that is not what he's saying. He's saying there is a sociological trend that, that sin does indeed get passed down kind of from generation to generation in family units like that, but it's not by a God who like beats on your kids because of something stupid that you did. Let me show it to you. Deuteronomy chapter 24, I know this is in the Bible app, but if you uh, have a physical Bible in your hand, Deuteronomy 24, right before they enter the promised land, verse 16. Deuteronomy 24, verse 16. Same Moses, same people, same journey. Here we go, 24, 16. Uh, Fathers shall not be put to death because of their children, nor shall children be put to death because of their fathers. Each one shall be put to death for his own sin. Ezekiel picks this up in Ezekiel 18 because there were people along the way who was like, oh, yeah, well, poor you. you know. And he, no, 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 no. You, you will have the own consequences for your own sin. So here's what I'm saying. Here's why that's important. We need to live holy lives. We need to live according to what God wants. We need to be the walking, talking representatives. And each individual person is responsible for responding to God in that moment. But don't miss this. Third and fourth generation is kind of an idiom uh, that, that, that he uses there. Don't miss this. Don't miss this in Exodus chapter 20, verse 6. But showing steadfast love. The Hebrew word is hesed. But showing steadfast love to thousands. For those who love me and keep my commandments. Third and fourth generation, thousands. What does God want? He wants to express his covenant, steadfast love to every person. And for us to experience the love that he has for us. That's what he wants. That's what he wants. A a bull statue doesn't get that done. A, A carving... Of some God doesn't get that done. Only the true God gets that done. No idols and no images. Verse 7. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. So no, no misuse. No misuse of his name. That's what you need to know. No misuse of his name. Um, there, there were three ways in the Old Testament... Uh, that uh, people took the Lord's name in vain. Highlight these three for you. Um, And you'll think to yourself, oh God, that's so crazy. That never happens today. And then we'll talk about how it happens today. Number one, sorcery. Anybody this week? You didn't have a pot and an eye of newt and nothing? Okay. Sorcery. Getting God on your side. I'm going to use God's name to get God on my side. Uh... I want to make sure that, uh, that uh, you know, God, I, I'm not trying to get on your side. I want you on my side on this deal, in this argument, with that thing, whatever. I want you on my side. God, here's more uh, a modern day expression of it. I know that if I just say the right words, God's going to answer my prayer. This is the same folks as opening up a magic book. Oh, here's the appropriate incantation for the situation I'm facing. Da, 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 da. Okay, now answer my prayer. Getting God on your side. Um, there's a New Testament uh, story that's uh, outside of the Jesus stories. Uh, it's my favorite New Testament story, I think. In Acts chapter 19, uh, there's a Jewish 
uh, guy, he's an exorcist. He uh, helps people with their demons and situations. Um, and he has seven sons. His name is Skiba. He has seven sons. And the seven sons are like, oh, dad's in the business. He seems to be making money. Uh, let, let's jump in. We'll jump into this. And so they are um, doing the things that they saw their dad do. And all of a sudden, Paul, the um, apostle, comes along. And he does things that are even crazier. So they say, ah, ha, 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 ha. We're going to do it this way. So they encounter a man who had a demon. And he says, uh, the, the seven sons of Sceva say to him, We adjure you in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, to come out of him. And the demon answered back, Hey, Jesus I know. Paul I've heard about. Who are you? Now folks, that's a bad day for you if you're an exorcist. And then, then the... the um, man who was possessed, uh, according to the Bible, uh, jumped on them, overpowered them, and sent them out bleeding and naked. Isn't that good? I mean, that's a good story. It's a good story. But they think, I adjure you by Jesus, whom Paul preaches, is somehow going to get God on their side and take care of the problem here. Sorcery still exists today. Number two, um, uh, you can take God's name in vain via false prophecy. Uh, meaning uh, that I am claiming leadership in God's name. Now again, nobody that we know in our day and age on any platform, media or otherwise, that would express, like nobody in our day and age would claim God's on their side, therefore you need to follow him or her, right? Okay. But something along the lines of, I'm going to tell you what to do or what's going to happen in God's name, even though I have absolutely no sense of leadership from God whatsoever. I just, I'm using it to manipulate. Here's the other manipulation. Uh, false prophecy. And thirdly, false oath. I'm saying this in God's name so that you will believe me. I'm claiming authority in God's name. And again, typically to manipulate. I want you to believe me. I want you to leave me alone or whatever. Maybe. Okay. Here's, here's, Here's the thing. If you grew up around church and you knew the Ten Commandments, taking the Lord's name in vain was one particular phrase. And let me just take a moment to address that. Um, like to use God's name as an invective or as like a point of exclamation. I mean, that, yes, that is absolutely a misuse of his name. But you cannot say those words and do some of these other stuff and still be misusing his name in the exact same way. Last thing, verse 8, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, for the seventh day is a Sabbath. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son, your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gate. gate. Uh, for in six days the Lord made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath and made it holy. So along the way, he continually says to them, hey, just remember, take a moment and, and, and keep the holy day. Take the moment and keep a holy day. And why is that? Because there, it establishes a rhythm. And this new rhythm of life um, allows us to focus in our day and in our age and being suburbanites that we are. Man, it's all coming at us, right? There's commercials on and games on and 
uh, uh, homework to be done and assignments to be made and on and on and on and on and on. And, and a new rhythm, a, a place where we pause. In Jewish life, it was Friday night to Saturday night. In, in our lives, boy, sometimes it's hard to find any time at all. To... A place where we pause, where we stop, where we reflect, where we say, God, we recognize just by stopping in this moment, we recognize that we are not the ones who are in control. The whole world does not actually depend upon me. A new rhythm like that allows us to focus on the things that are really the most important. God, I'm in relationship with you because you called me to that. I, I, I have a family who are more than just spots on my schedule. They're people made in your image. I have neighbors who need to be loved. I have friends who need to be checked on. I just, a new rhythm allows us to focus. And I would just say this as a note here. This kind of sustainable rest and focus are not a sacrifice. If you choose to build this into your life, you recognize that this is not actually a sacrifice at all. This is, it's life-giving. It's life-giving. So, um, what we very quickly figure out, when, when we say, okay, God, we see this, what we very quickly figure out is, number one, we cannot keep these commandments. We can't. Why did God give them to us? Because they're an invitation to our joy. They're an invitation for us to live as he says is best. But we figure out there ain't no way we can keep them. So we go to God and we say, God, I can't keep these commandments. And we figure out we need forgiveness for our failures. I can't keep these commandments, God. But you're the Lord who has the authority to say them. And you're the one who set me free. And I want to live free, but I'm not. So I need forgiveness for the ways that I messed up. And thirdly, I, I need them written somewhere other than a tablet of stone, other than just a book. Why? Because, again, I'll speak for me, and it may not be you. Um, I, 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 if they're just written out somewhere where I can just look at it, I go, oh, yeah, yeah, God, I haven't gone to a pagan temple today. I guess I must be good. God, I haven't actually asked you to curse anyone while I was driving on the freeway. I guess I'm okay. I, I can think that if I live according to the letter of the law, that somehow I have fulfilled the full scope of its application. I need them written somewhere else other than just on a stone or a piece of paper. And, and lastly, I, what we figure out is that I need a power. If they're written somewhere else, then I need a power to live as as if they're actually true. I need a power to live them out. And the good news is, folks, I mean, th this, is, this is the gospel. What we figure out is that the gospel is true. You and I can't keep the commandments that God said are best. And so what do we need? We desperately need forgiveness for our failures. Great news, Jesus came. He kept the commandments that we couldn't. He lived the life that we couldn't. He lived perfectly so that he could die sacrificially. And we need them written somewhere other than on a stone. Jeremiah, the prophet, says God is going to come. And when we put our faith in Jesus, he writes these things on our hearts. How would he write them on our hearts unless he was there? We have a 
He takes up residence in our lives. We have a new power. It's not just dependent upon my own willpower at this point. I have a new power to live them out because he has come to live inside of me and is working in me to then live out the things that he wants. This is the good news of Jesus. And we come to a time of communion to remind ourselves of that. Some of us packed our bags today with story after story after story of failure. We had a little too much fun this weekend. We had one too many drinks. We had one too many whatever. We didn't do the things we were supposed to do. We did the things we weren't supposed to do. Good news, Jesus is in the business of forgiving sin. And along the way, what you're learning is these things need to be written in here. And his power needs to be at work in here so that we can live out the things that he says to do. We come to communion to remind ourselves of this. So if you haven't gotten communion elements, we're going to pause for just a moment in our service, let you do so. And if you need to fold up uh, Bibles or books or anything else and kind of collect your things, do so. And then I'll lead out here in communion in just a moment. On the night before Jesus went to the cross, the night he was betrayed by Judas. He had his followers in a room, and he was serving them. Uh, They were experiencing Passover together, and what he was doing was um, uh, bringing that forward into a, a new meaning. He took bread, and he broke it, and he passed it around. He said, this is my body, which is broken for you. You need to eat, and you need to remember What he was doing in that moment was reminding us, excuse me, he was telling them, teaching them, but we in this moment are reminding ourselves that through the brokenness of Jesus, he lived the life that we could not have lived and he died the death that we deserved to die. Through the brokenness of Jesus, you and I are made whole. And then he took a cup and he passed it around and he said, this is the blood of the new covenant which is shed for you. No longer does our forgiveness hinge on something that we can do in a specific place, in a specific moment, to atone for our sins. That never worked fully anyway. We have to have a new kind of power to pay for our sins. Good news, we have one. So I'm going to lead us in a prayer, give you a moment to, again, say whatever you need to say to God so that we can celebrate communion together and remind ourselves that He has delivered us and is making us into the new people of God. Let's pray together. Father, the blessing that comes from our lives lived in obedience to your word is that there are moments like this where we've hauled so much around this week and we get a moment to release all of that to you and say, God, here's every bit of it. Take it. Here's every bit of it. And so in this moment, Jesus, we want to pause and say, thank you. Thank you that your body was broken. Thank you that nails pierced you and a crown of thorns was beat onto you and a sword went went into your side and, and cut you open. God, thank you, Jesus, that that happened because it's through that that you and I, we, God, are made whole. That was your plan. To make us whole. Thank you, Jesus, that the 
blood which you shed, more precious than silver or gold, jewels. Thank you that it purchased us. It paid the debt and purchased favor with God. We want to celebrate that and remember it. Why don't you take just a moment, say whatever you need to say to the Lord. May what we do in this moment, Lord Jesus, honor you. And we pray in your name. Everybody said, amen.